We'll open your Bibles, if you would, to Genesis 45. We started this message last week. And we talked about the revelations that are there. You have in Genesis 45 a number of revelations that lead to restoration. We looked at the revelations last week. We're going to look at the restoration this week. But before we do, I'll share a little story with you. On New Year's Eve at London's Garrick Club, a British writer, Frederick Lunsdale, was asked by Seymour Hicks to reconcile with a fellow member of the of the club. The two had a long-standing quarrel, and and they never had restored the relationship. and And Hicks said to to Lunsdale, "You must, you must reconcile. It's it's very unkind to be unfriendly at at such a time as this. It's New Year's Eve. Go over there and wish the man a happy." A happy new year. And so Lonsdale crossed the room and spoke to his enemy and said to him, I wish you a happy new year, but only one. That's what he said. And while that's funny, I found myself laughing as well. It's, it's common to what you normally see with, with reconciliation, whenever you look in the, in the world. The world gives example after example of reconciliation that's, that's short-circuited, that's coerced, that's temporary. You can look at like the apologies mandated by the political correctness police, and you'll find people apologizing profusely. And if you don't say it exactly the right word, then you have to go to political correctness rehab or whatever it is, and then maybe get a reality TV show after that. Reconciliation in the world is coerced or strings are attached, or it's like this, it's temporary. I wish you a happy new year, but only one. It's not the same kind of reconciliation that you find in the Bible. It's, it's incomplete. You're going to see some powerful examples of reconciliation in the story of Jacob and we're going to learn what God would, would say to us as believers, as Christians. What does reconciliation look like? And, and I, really, there may be another place, but I can't, I can't think of a, of a better illustration than, than what we're going to see in, in, in Genesis 45. We come to the, the pinnacle of the story. It's, remember, it's the story of Jacob and and we're seeing Jacob through the, through the eyes of Joseph. And, and basically everything that's happened with Joseph being sent to Egypt and, and slavery and Potiphar's house and then prison and the rise to prominence and the testing of the brothers is all to bring us to where chapter 46 is... We read this morning where chapter 46 takes us. I mean, everything is preliminary. That's the introduction, if you will, to to chapter 46, which is God's people in Egypt. How they got there, why they got there, and, and what was the purpose. And, and you're in chapter 45, and this is where Jacob reveals himself to his brothers, and, and this, this is the pinnacle. 
And when you get, we get to the next chapter, it's going to set up the book of, of Exodus, and Moses is going to, to show us how Abraham connects to Moses. He's going to, the narrator is going to show us how the patriarchs connect to the, the, the nation of, uh, of Israel. And you're going to understand, understand your Old Testament, I think, a lot better when we, when we get to chapter, chapter 46. But chapter 45 is surprise after surprise after surprise based on Revelation. Joseph reveals himself to his brothers... Verses 1 through 3, God reveals His purpose and the brothers reveal the truth to their father. All of those are very difficult and and each of them leads to a reconciliation. Joseph is reconciled to his brothers and he shows us what forgiveness looks like. The brothers are reconciled to Jacob, their father, and they show us what confession looks like. And then Jacob is reconciled to God, specifically to God's promise. And he shows us what walking by faith looks like. And so the proposition that you should write down this morning, the guys are going to bring up on the screen, is three reconciliations that lead to restoration. Reconciliation, true reconciliation, leads to restoration. It leads to restoring of a previous relationship. It True reconciliation leads to restoration. And as I said, the first one is Joseph is reconciled to, to his brothers. And we looked at how, how, that, how he revealed himself last week. But I want to show you the, the reconciliation that's found in verse 14 and 15. Look at verse 14 and 15 of Genesis 45. Then Joseph fell on his brother Benjamin's neck and wept. And Benjamin wept on his neck. Moreover, he, that's Joseph, kissed all of his brothers and wept over them. And after this, the brothers talked with him. That's with Joseph. They they fellowshiped. After the dramatic scene where Joseph realizes his brothers have passed the test, he can't contain himself anymore. He, he, he yells out, tells all the Egyptians to leave. He, he reveals himself to his brothers and they're standing there speechless and shocked. And then he tells them, you know, he pl- applies God's providence not only to, to his own life, why I got here, but he applies it to his brothers. Then you have this beautiful picture of reconciliation at the very end. After the revelation comes reconciliation. And he starts with Benjamin. Look at verse 14 again. He fell on his brother's Benjamin's neck and wept. Look at verse 15. He moves to the rest of his brothers. He kissed all of his brothers and wept over them. And then you notice everything that's present here. There's great emotion. There's weeping on Joseph's part and and the same on Benjamin's part. There's personal affection. You've got hugging and weeping on the neck and kissing, which was a sign of, of fellowship. It's like greet one another with a kiss. It's, it's, it's brother. It's, 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 a, it's an embrace between long-lost brothers where there's been a breach. And, and then there's fellowship at the end. They, and after that, his brothers talked with him. They conversed. They fellowshiped with him. And and the whole scene ends with this picture of a relationship restored. And you understand how bad the relationship was. You understand how, how horrible these brothers sinned. 
And I would guess that in some form or another, you would probably find all of those things or most of those things. If, if reconciliation happens, you'll, you'll find emotion probably. If you've ever been through a reconciliation with somebody else, a lot of times there's tears. You'll find personal affection whenever reconciliation happens, whether people hug or, or whether they shake hands or, and then you'll find fellowship afterwards. But what I want you to pay close attention to is who initiated this reconciliation. Look at verse 14 again. Then he, that's Joseph, fell on his brother Benjamin's neck. And look at verse 15. Then he, that's Joseph, kissed all of his brothers. And then look at verse, the end of verse 15. And after this, his brothers talked with him. That's Joseph. Joseph was the one that initiated the reconciliation. It was Joseph who actually confronted his brothers to begin with. It was Joseph who, who put his brothers to the test to see if they were changed. It's Joseph who reveals himself to his brothers. It's Joseph who initiated the reconciliation here at the end. And after he did this, his brother, brothers responded and the relationship was, was restored. And Joseph gives an amazing but difficult illustration of how a Christian is to forgive others who sin against them. You are to imitate Christ and initiate reconciliation. Now, I think there are two key passages in the New Testament concerning believers reconciling whenever they sin against one another. And they're kind of opposite sides of the coin. One is found in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 23 through 24, where Jesus is talking about the sin of murder. You have, you have heard, thou shalt not kill, but I say unto you. And he talks about anger. And then he moves out of the anger. He applies the anger to reconciling between two people. Because a lot of times where there's a breach, anger is... is is associated with it. Matthew 23 through 24, Jesus says, Therefore, if you're presenting your offering at the altar, if you're worshiping God, and there you remember your brother has something against you, has ought against you, leave your offering there before the altar and go be reconciled to your brother and then come and present your offering before the Lord. He says, Go to the one you sinned against. If, if you're worshiping God and you realize, you recognize that you're unreconciled, you go to the person that you've sinned against. That's one. Matthew 5, 23-24. The other passage you, is very familiar. It's Matthew 18. Matthew 18 is go to the one who sinned against you. Matthew 5 is go to the one you sinned against. Matthew 18 is go to the one who sinned against you. If your brother sins, go show him his fault in private. If he listens to you, you've, you've won a brother. And in one you find the person who sinned against coming, who was sinned against coming and showing his fault to his brother. You're probably more familiar with that. If, if you are offended, if someone has sinned against you, you, you go to them and you show them their fault. Jesus calls you, if you're offended, not to leave things unreconciled. In Matthew 5, you have the person coming before God in worship, realizing that he has sinned and going to the one who wronged and make it, making it right. Jesus calls their 
for us to seek reconciliation quickly, eagerly, aggressively. If you put Matthew 5 and Matthew 18 together, you should find the Matthew 5 person meeting the Matthew 18 person on the road, heading toward each other. One who's the sinner is coming to the one who was sinned against, and they meet in the middle, and they're reconciled. Reconciliation's a big deal to God. But Joseph gives you another dimension, gives me another dimension entirely. This is not the person who sinned going to the person who sinned against or the person who was offended going and saying, hey, I'm offended. Joseph models Christ as the offended initiates the reconciliation. Joseph was the one who was sinned against and he doesn't go say, hey, here's, my, here's your offense. Confess it to me. He initiates reconciliation himself. If there's anything I've been taken back by is in walking through this whole narrative, it's just, it's just how time after time after time, with opportunity after opportunity, Joseph doesn't retaliate against his brothers. And I guess here's the capstone. I mean, when he's given an opportunity, he initiates reconciliation when his brothers have no path. Reconciliation. I mean, the brothers think he's dead. They don't know how to find him. They couldn't ask for forgiveness if they wanted to. But here, Joseph initiates it. Not only that, he's the second in command of Egypt. His brothers show up after 20 years, groveling, needy, desperate, and he doesn't repay them their wrong. In fact, he initiates reconciliation with them. I think Joseph gives us a very good example of what living with open hands instead of a clenched fist looks like. You understand what I'm saying by that? People are going to sin against you. Offenses are going to come because you live in a fallen world. And you can either live like this. You can either grab a hold of that fist and you can clench it until you got the white knuckles or you can live with, with an, open, an open hand. And I think Joseph was forgiving long before he got the chance to formally forgive. He didn't live the vengeance on his mind or anger in his heart, counting the days until he had the opportunity to repay those brothers. He lived allowing those feelings, and no doubt those temptations came, but he lived allowing those feelings to slip through the fingers of his heart and letting God fill his hands with grace and peace. How do you think Joseph's experience would have been in Egypt had he lived differently? Had he not done that? Had he counted the days till vengeance? How do you think his life would have went? you think Joseph would have been where, where he ended up? I would say Joseph would have lived a miserable life if he would have went through those positions to step him up to where God intended him to be. And ultimately, Joseph would have hurt himself for 20 years if he'd have been consumed with payback. You've heard having an unforgiving spirit hurts you, not the person you sinned against, because most of the time they don't even know what, what you're going through. Now, the person who hurts you, the person who sins, has issues themselves. They have a guilty conscience that they lay down with every night, and they wake up with every night. You deal with the hurt of the sin, they deal with the guilty conscience of knowing that they've done it, regardless of what they, what they say. They also have to deal with God. They have to deal with you. You remember my... My pastor talking about being at a driver at the at the bus garage one time and his boss accused him of 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 being dishonest. And he said, I'm not dishonest. I fear God more than I more than I fear you. 
They also have to deal with God. I mean, think of the, the greatest vengeance that Joseph could portray upon his brothers pales in comparison to what God can ultimately bring on someone. That's why the Lord says, Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord, I'll repay. He has the ability to see everything perfectly and right, and he also has the ability to settle the score, and he will one day. The guilty have God to deal with. But vengeance will eat a hole in your soul, not theirs. I'm not saying that the feeling that they deserve punishment or that it's wrong is wrong in and of itself. There's a biblical sense of justice, and that's right. I mean, when you see things perpetrated on children or whatever, you should have righteous indignation. Forgiveness is not saying, okay, it's okay, it didn't hurt, or forget about it. Forgiveness fully acknowledges the offense and the violation with all of its pain and the deserved consequences. When you, when God forgave you, He didn't sugarcoat your sin. He said, you sinned against Almighty God and you deserved to split hell wide open, just like I did. He didn't cover any of it. I mean, proof of that is the cross. Forgiveness acknowledges the violation and all of its pain and even the deserved consequences. But forgiveness is a person choosing by full and free volition not to repay the perpetrator for their offense. It says, I will not give someone what they deserve. And that's exactly what Joseph did here. I choose not to give my brothers what they deserve. And Joseph even goes a step farther. He initiates that reconciliation. Do you remember when we walked through looking inside the brothers' hearts, when the narrator gave us a picture of their hearts, how their conscience was defiled and how they were guilty and at every turn, oh, this happened, God has found us out. you remember all of that? Oh, man, I mean, they are tormented, lying to their father, lying to themselves. And Joseph was forgiving long before he had he got the chance to formally forgive. Man, it's hard. It's hard even with God's help when a person comes to you and says, they humble themselves before you and say, you know, forgive me. I blew it. I messed up. That's hard. But at least you have the person's humility to go, well, okay, they seem to be... But Joseph here actually initiates it because the brothers don't have a path to reconcile. I mean, the brothers don't have a path to reconcile. The brothers only have the ability to prove that there's a change in their life, and they, they don't even think Joseph is alive. They don't know who this guy is. He's the man in Egypt, as the text says. And while it's hard whenever a person comes, even with God's help, I think it's impossible to do what Joseph did without Jesus. And what gives you the ability to forgive like Joseph forgives is because of what Jesus did for us, because that's exactly what He did. He came to us and initiated forgiveness when we had no path to seek Him. You didn't find God. God found you. And He initiated that forgiveness with you. He sought you and He bought you. He sent someone to you to share the gospel with you. He allowed the consequences to come bearing down in your life. He initiated it. He stooped. He condescended. He took took on human flesh. He left heaven. He came to earth. He initiated reconciliation with you. 
because you and I had no path to be reconciled to God. And this is God. I mean, Joseph could have brought all of the wrath of Pharaoh and the entire power of Egypt down on his brothers. Jesus could have brought the wrath of Almighty God down upon us, and he, and he didn't. He initiates, he comes, and he says, come. He weeps on your neck long before you weep on his. You ever experienced that forgiveness? I'm not talking about forgiveness that's based on on your repentance or what you think you deserve or, okay, I've tried to make everything right I can make right, therefore God may accept me now. I'm talking about forgiveness that you don't deserve that's been initiated by God even though you're still filthy and dirty. I mean, you get a hold of that, that that's really what, what the grace of God is about. You're right, you don't deserve it, but Christ offers it. Your sin's not small, it's great. It keeps you from God, it torments your conscience, but, but Christ is coming to you, reaching to you, inviting to you. And I know it's shocking. It was shocking to the brothers. I mean, if you think they were shocked by their brother, I mean, they don't even respond until they take in what, what Joseph is, is doing. I know it's shocking that God would initiate forgiveness with you. But He's offering a nail-scarred hand to prove that He's serious. You need that kind of forgiveness? It's only available through Christ. You won't find it in the world, in a bottle, anywhere. You'll find it only in Jesus. Do you need to forgive someone like that? Are you living with a clenched fist rather than an open hand? Is there a clenched fist somewhere in your heart for someone else? What that person's done to you is, is wrong. But peace can be, can be yours. If you allow God to take the vengeance out of your hand and fill it with His grace and with His peace and give that vengeance to Him. If a person is seeking your forgiveness, then grant it. If they can't seek it or haven't seeked it, have a forgiving heart. And God can help you find peace. Joseph reconciled to his brothers gives us a, an amazing picture of forgiveness. Now let's turn the coin over because the second reconciliation that leads to restoration is the brothers are reconciled to their father, to Jacob. Verse 21, you find... The transition, here's a new scene. After Pharaoh chimes in and gives his blessing to what's going to happen. Verse 21, the sons of Israel did so, and Joseph gave them carts. I mean, the symbolism for what the Lord's done for us, the illustration is just, it's just amazing. He gives them money, changes of garments. He treats them as if they're not guilty, and that's exactly what God has done for you after you're reconciled, even though you're still unrighteous, you're declared righteous by God, and then treated as a righteous person, even though you still sin. And He's treating them here with, with, with great honor. Look at verse 25. Then they came up out of Egypt and came to the land of Canaan to Jacob their father. 
And they told him, saying, Joseph is still alive, and he is governor over all the land of Egypt. While Joseph shows us what, how to forgive those who sin against us, the brothers turn the coin and show, show us what coming clean requires. What if you're not the person who, who was sinned against, but the one who sinned? What should you do? The brothers give you an example here. Here the brothers make the long journey back to Canaan, and they have plenty of time to, to blame shift. Joseph even, even tells them, don't argue on the way. Plenty of time to think, plenty of time to blame shift, plenty of time to, to come up with something to tell Jacob to soften the blow, but they don't. They, they confess. They simply say, Joseph is alive. They knew exactly what they were saying to Father. And Jacob knew exactly what they were saying, meaning he's not dead like we told you. <laughs> he's alive. The brothers, without covering anything, without giving some long tale about how Joseph was found by, by Egyptians or by wolves and raised in the jungle like Mowgli, and now he is the great Pharaoh's right hand. Wow, this is amazing. We never thought this. We thought he was... I mean, they don't do any of that. They just say Joseph is alive and he is ruler over Egypt. And Jacob knows full well what they mean. And if you're the one who sinned, Complete, clear, unadulterated confession is the only way that you will find peace for your soul. There's another way. You must acknowledge your sin or you will forever be cursed with a burden to bear it. The only way that you can unburden your soul is through confession. That's God's mechanism. And it's a beautiful thing. It's gracious. We were talking on Wednesday night, a couple of Wednesday nights ago, about how the world says you have a disorder or you have some issue but gives you no way to fix it. No way to, to fix it. You just said, you're stuck with this. You're going to deal with this the rest of your life. God calls what we do sin. And the world says, that's horrible. How could you call that a sin? That, you're, you're being judgmental against somebody else. No, God's not being judgmental. He's being gracious because sin can be repented of. Sin can be confessed. And what is confessed can be forgiven and cleansed. And you're free. You see how gracious that is? To say you're born that way, it's not helpful. You struggle with that the rest of your life. For society to try to tell you it's okay what you do doesn't fix your conscience. Do you ever wonder why people on the outside look so put together sometimes? Their life is in such order, and yet on the inside they're, they're, they're in, in a great emotional turmoil. God says it's sin, and sin can be confessed, and if it's confessed, it, it can be taken away. The person who grants forgiveness transfers the right to repay to the Lord. That's how you're free if someone's hurt you. You transfer the right to repay to the Lord. He'll do a whole lot better job than you will. And you're freed then from the burden of vengeance. You don't have the burden of vengeance. The person who sinned can be freed from the burden of guilt through confession. If you've been hurt 
and have never forgiven, you know how heavy the gavel of justice is to carry, don't you? I mean, you pick it up at first, and you think, I'm going to repay. And the longer that you carry it, the bigger that gavel gets, and, and it'll ultimately bring you to your knees. But when you forgive and you hand it over to the Lord, and you say, Lord, I trust you to do what is right with what is owed, and you lay that gavel at His feet, He'll take care of it. And if you're the one who hurts someone, carrying the burden of guilt can be even heavier. It can drive the person mad. Read Psalm 32. Read what happened to David whenever he sinned with Bathsheba before he confessed it. It says his bones waxed. It's like his bones turned to wax. I mean, it, it, it was like he was like emotional jelly. That he was like a man in the middle of the desert, his tongue curled like a person who was so parched without, dehydrated without water that their tongue swells. He's talking about the physical torment that, that came, the effect of the emotion, that, the effect that emotion had on his body. You want to see an even stronger picture? Look at Judas. What happened with Judas? What did guilt do to him? It drove him to suicide. Guilt, unconfessed sin, will drive you mad. And yet confession brings your sin to God and lays it before Him and then God goes with you to the person you've wronged and things can be reconciled. It's not easy. It doesn't mean you're not guilty of the sin or the crime. It doesn't mean that all consequences are going to go away. It means you no longer have to hide your guilt and carry your defiled conscience. I've heard of stories or read stories of, of people drowning, being weighed down by something. Have you, have you seen like um, you know some of these TV shows like where they're in Alaska and they're riding uh, the snowmobiles and they fall through the ice and they're stuck under the water and it's weighting them down and they can see how to get out but they can't and it's dragging them down. That's what a defiled conscience feels like. Confess your sin. Come clean. And it will begin a path of healing. But you say, what if the person that I did wrong doesn't respond rightly or immediately forgive? Well, look at verse 26. 25 says, Then they came out of Egypt, came to the land of Canaan, to Jacob their father, and they told him, they confessed to Dad, Joseph is still alive. With all the implications of what that means, he's the governor of the land of Egypt. <clears throat> and Jacob's heart stood still because he did not believe them. Now, part of that shock, I mean, he's believed his son's dead, but he also believed that the brothers were the ones that killed him. And part of this is Joseph doesn't believe the words of his sons because of the pattern that's been in their life. He doesn't believe them. Partial shock, but also because they have a history, they have a reputation of being deceptive. Jerry Clower tells the story of one of the, the sons, brother to Marcel Ledbetter, who lies all the time. 
He comes running in the house. His name is Nugene. Nugene comes in and tells his mother, says, there's a lion in the yard. There's a lion in the yard. And his mother said, Nugene, how many times have I talked to you about lion? You go upstairs and you talk to the Lord. And when, about what you just said, and whenever you're done, you, whenever you're done doing business with God, you come back down. Hour or so goes by, and Nugene comes back down. She said, did, Nugene, did you talk to the Lord? And he said, Yes, I did. And he said, What did the Lord say? He said, The Lord said he thought that dog was a lion, too. <laughs> Jerry Clower tells it a lot better. <laughs> but Nugene had a reputation for lying. And so do the sons of Jacob. They're deceitful. They're evil sons. They, they had to convince him. The brothers had to convince him to allow Benjamin to even go with them. Don't expect people to take your words with more weight than the deeds of your life, which are much weightier. If you've been in sin for a while, there are patterns of sin in your past, don't expect people to listen to your words when they have a record, the record of your life that's contradicting them. You must change that record, and that takes time, doesn't it? God may have done a great work in your heart, and that spiritual change can be instantaneous. I'm not saying that God didn't change your heart, but don't expect others to act on what they can't see. They can't see your heart. God can see your heart. All they have to see is the past fruit of your life, which is contrary to now the change that you're professing or what you're saying. But if you're truly changed, then that will become evident by the fruit of your life and that will take time and that won't bother you to wait. Because your sin that created the patterns that they're basing their decision on didn't bother you whenever you were doing that either. So this should really, shouldn't bother you. I mean, one of the surefire ways to tell if you still have some repentance le- left to do is when you expect immediate restoration, or you get angry or impatient with the person that you're seeking forgiveness from because it's taking them too long. It's, it's an immediate sign that you still have some repenting left to do. Now, that person may need help in forgiving, but you're not in a position to demand it. <laughs> so confess. Give thanks to God. And then prove your repentance by your changed life. Look at verse 27. Joseph, or Jacob, is convinced by the evidence. But when they told him all the words which Joseph had said to them, and when he saw the carts which Joseph had sent to carry him, and then the spirit of Jacob their father revived, and then Israel said, Is enough. My son Jacob is still alive. I will go and see him before I die. It's when he saw that the spirit of their father, it's when he heard, and there was a moment of change. So don't expect, and also don't lose heart. Confession accompanied by a changed life will lead to reconciliation. They want a peace with their father, and they got it. 
may take a short time, may take a long time, but if you remain faithful, eventually the spirit of the person that you send likely will revive or the Lord will heal your heart and allow you to move forward. And the good news is, while it may take time with other men, reconciliation with God is instant because He can see past the heart and the future. Let me give you the third reconciliation that leads to restoration. Jacob is reconciled to God. Verse 28, Then Israel said, It's enough. Jacob, my son, is still alive. I will go and see him before I die. Chapter 46, verse 1. So Israel took his journey with all that he had and came to Beersheba. That's the West Virginia way. Tim says it proper. And offered sacrifices to God of his father Isaac. Then God spoke to Israel in visions of the night and said, Jacob, Jacob, and he said, Here I am. So he, that's God, says, I am God, the God of your father. Do not fear to go down to Egypt, for I will make of you a great nation there, and I will go down with you. And I will surely bring you up again. And so, and Joseph will put his hand on your eyes. Then Jacob arose from Beersheba, and the sons of Israel carried their father. Jacob and the little ones and their wives and their carts, which Pharaoh sent. And the end of verse 7, and they brought him down to Egypt. Alright, so we saw the, the one who was sinned against picture of forgiveness. see the one who sinned. see the picture of confession. Now, what do you do to Jacob? Jacob both sinned and was sinned against, right? I mean, Jacob is the liar. Jacob is the one who played favorites with the kids that started part of this whole process. Here's the guy who both sinned and was sinned against. How, now that the brothers are reconciled to Joseph and Jacob is reconciled to his sons, Jacob is called to walk by faith in a move from Canaan to Egypt. Now, we're going to go through chapter 46 and see the significance of this in the, in the foundation series next week. But I want to point out Jacob's reconciliation to God and His promises. I want you to miss the significance of what he's being asked to do. This was a patriarch, the last patriarch, and he's being asked to leave the land of promise by the God who gave the promise to go to the land of Egypt. Exactly the opposite of what Abraham was told. And that would have probably been perplexing and scary, and he surely doesn't even know why. All he knows... Because the Lord seems to be in it. And regardless of whether you're the one who sinned or the one who sinned against, you can't stay where you're at. And if God charts you a path forward, the only way to walk it is by faith. And just whenever you need the Lord's confirmation... 
of his presence and his plan, he will he'll show up. There's massive overtones of the Abrahamic original journey here. Jacob leaves his home to a place that God has prepared for him, just like Abraham. The difference is one was leaving the land of promise. But the similarity is both required trust in God who made the promise. Abraham was told to go a land I'll show you. Jacob was to leave the land I promised to the one that you'll return to one day. But look at verse 2. Then God spoke to Israel in the visions of the night and said, Jacob, Jacob, you remember the last time that God spoke? What's been the whole thing? I mean, What's been the way that God has been speaking through this entire story? How was this whole thing initiated? It was a dream, right? The reminder of the dream. There's no audible voice from God. There's no vision directly from God. It was a dream. And God's been, His unseen hand has been here. I mean, we just had the declaration. God revealed what He'd been doing. It wasn't the brothers that sent you here. I sent you here. So God's providence has been at work. But here, God speaks to the patriarch before he goes into the land of Egypt. It was chapter 39, the last time that God spoke. And it was because Jacob, Jacob, the one who sinned and the one who sinned against, was being asked to walk forward by faith. And God was assuring Jacob. God makes four statements. He declares who He is. I am God. He declares His relationship. I'm the God of your Father. I'm, in, I'm the covenant God, and I'm in covenant with you. And, and He gives him assurance. Don't be fearful. Don't be afraid. And, and then He makes a promise. I'll make you a great nation, and I'll bring you back. And Jacob arose and walked by faith, and he came to Egypt. Whatever you need, whenever you need it, what I want you to understand is the Lord will be there. And while whether you've sinned or whether you've sinned against, whatever is required scripturally, whatever God demands of you, God reminds you who He is. He can do anything. God reminds you that you are His. You're in relationship with Him. I will never leave you nor forsake you. He Gives you assurance, don't be afraid. Over and over and over in the Old Testament, don't be afraid, do not fear, have courage. And He always reminds us, I will do exactly what I promised to do. There's nothing else on the planet that can offer you that same assurance. Because there's only one true God. He loves you. And He wants to be reconciled to you and wants you to be reconciled to others. And gives us a wonderful path to get there. 